We're back in the book of Romans. I'm just excited about this sermon. We're going to talk about the fact that faith has always been the way. Uh, But Romans chapter 9 that we're going to look at today is perhaps one of the most hotly debated chapters of the Bible. Many pastors will skim over it when they're preaching through Romans, and some uh, will avoid it altogether. They just won't talk about it. I'll admit it's very deep, and while some passages are on their face easy to understand and apply, you know, do not lie, I got that, this passage is fraught with passionate, godly people on both sides of the issue in chapter 9. The issue at hand is the sovereignty of God and his character and will when it comes to the issue of predestination. Uh, Has God from the beginning chosen who he would save and who he would not save? Does he just arbitrarily pick the keepers and the weepers? Does man have any part at all in in his own salvation story? Are all of us, in essence, just mindless robots being led by the whim of God? Does God have the right as the creator to keep and choose what he wants and condemn and throw away the rest? Let's read this passage and see if we can determine what it is that God is saying through Paul in this chapter. Now, I want to tell you, before we read it, there are some subjects that are hills to die on, okay? Uh, Listen, if, if you don't believe in the virgin birth... We have an issue about who Jesus really is and, and what he came here to do. That's a hill to die on. If you don't believe Jesus is the only way to salvation, that's a hill to die on. There are certain things that we believe as Christians that are clear from the scripture that are hills to die on. I want you to know if you have a different interpretation of this particular passage that I'm going to share with you today Don't freak out. Don't leave our church. Don't think that you've lost your salvation. Uh, We can just have different opinions about some things, okay? But I do want you to at least uh, face this with an open heart and an open mind and see if maybe God might enlighten us a little bit because it's one of those chapters that if you read it on the face, it kind of says one thing. But when you really dive into it, dissect it, really study it, which I have done this week, you see maybe a little different light on some of the subject matter. So let's look at Romans chapter 9. Today we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 29. Here's what it says. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, 
not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not, not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Wow. Now when we first read this on the surface, it may seem that the deterministic interpretation of this passage is correct. And what I mean by deterministic interpretation is God just determines beforehand, before the world was made, who was going to go to heaven and who was going to go to hell. He just decided it, he picked it, that was it. It's kind of easy to see that. Paul says that God has mercy on whomever he chooses and he hardens whomever he chooses he speaks of God's sovereign choice of Isaac over Ishmael. And even before Jacob and Esau were born, and before they had done anything, good or bad, he said, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Then Paul talks about the relationship of a potter to some clay, with the authority to make some vessels for destruction, to show his power and wrath, and others to show his glory. And his mercy. Now, there are many godly theologians that hold to this deterministic interpretation of this passage, and they support it by saying, after all, God is God and we are not. Doesn't he have the right to make these decisions and save whom he decides and condemn who he decides? Some of these folks are so extreme that they say God has already determined every aspect of the movie. And he's now just kind of sitting back watching it all play out to his scripted end with no will, no decisions on the part of mankind. I have to be honest. I really struggle greatly with this interpretation of this passage. 
And I struggle with it even more now that I've spent a couple of weeks really studying it. Not because I don't like the outcome. Listen, God and I have already settled the fact that he tells me what to believe. I don't tell him what to believe. The biggest reason I struggle with that interpretation is because that would contradict other biblical passages and doctrines that are strongly taught in the Bible. There's a long-held debate suggesting that a person is either a five- or four-point Calvinist, means they follow the teachings of John Calvin, believing that God has predetermined every decision that will be made and man has no participation in that relationship other than to do exactly what God has already predetermined. Or a person is an Armenian following the teaching of Jacobus Arminius, meaning that while God has complete foreknowledge of man's decisions because he's outside of time and space, man participates in the act of salvation by responding to God's mercy and grace and the prompting of the Holy Spirit. So which is it? Which is it? I think when we look at chapter 9 carefully, we will see that it is far less deterministic than it appears to be on its first reading. Before we do that, though, let's remember two key principles taught in the New Testament because I think this will help us as we understand in the context of the entire Bible what God is saying in chapter 9 of Romans. And the first principle is this. This is kind of like a word puzzle. I don't know why I did that, but it's a, it's a, it means the same thing. God's desire is for everyone to be saved from their sins. God's desire is for everyone to be saved from their sins. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It says, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In 2 Peter 3, 9, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's clear from the word of God that his desire, what God wants, is for every single person to give their life to him through Jesus Christ so that we all wind up in heaven at the end. That's what he wants. That's his desire. Principle number two is this. Jesus died for the sins of the entire world, all-inclusive. Now, what I don't mean by all-inclusive is that it's everybody, even those who reject Christ, but he died for the sins of the entire world and all of their sins. Look at 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. It says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And of course, John 3, 16. For God so loved the whole world that he gave his only son that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It is hard, it is very hard to come to a conclusion that God predetermines everything when he goes against his own desires. So what could this possibly mean? What is it that Paul's trying to tell us here? What, what makes any sense, really? Well, let's look at it bit by bit, piece by piece, and I think we can maybe understand it a little better. Point one, there's no controversy under, uh, of, and that is this. Paul expresses his sorrow over Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ. 
As I read again verses 1 through 5, look how pained Paul is that the majority of the nation of Israel has rejected Jesus. Look what he says. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, and what that means is thrown into the pits of hell, were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Here Paul sets a very important stage. He's talking about the nation of Israel and their understanding of what he has been saying about the gospel. Remember, this isn't where the the letter to the Roman churches starts. We've been going on for eight chapters already. And if you remember, a lot of it was talking about the gospel and how we are completely depraved as human beings. Left to our own nature, we are as depraved as depraved can possibly be. But God sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life, not a good life, a perfect life and pay the penalty for our sins. And so this distance between our depravity and, and God's holiness, Jesus' perfection, is indeed the gospel. He's been talking about that, how wonderful it is, how big it is, and how by faith any person can receive the gospel. Paul's just spent pages talking about this. But he starts here by saying, I would endure the full wrath of God if I could just make all my Jewish brothers and sisters put their faith and trust in Jesus. I would give up my own life, my own eternity, if I could just convince them all of this. He says, to the nation of Israel belongs all the blessings of the Old Testament. God's adoption of them as a nation. Being eyewitnesses to God's glory several times. Being beneficiaries of God's promises and covenants. Recipients and keepers and protectors of God's law. They had the recipe for divine worship in the temple. And the patriarchs were their fathers. And the Savior would be born from their lineage. All of these things pointed to them being God's chosen people. But in spite of all these privileges, they were not experiencing God's overall blessing. Because of the widespread unbelief and their rejection of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. If the gospel that Paul was preaching was true, that all could come to salvation in Jesus Christ through faith, it seemed to be undermining their religion of becoming righteous by obeying the law. That had to lead the Jews to this question. Does this mean God's word has failed us? Does this mean everything God has ever said to us is somehow untrue? Does this mean that God has, in essence, let us down? Paul responds to that question in this manner. He says the children of the promise are those that have faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verses 6 through 13. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Think about that for a minute. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. 
About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated." couple of things here. Paul states that the children of the promise are not those that are Israelites by nationality or by external obedience to the law. They're not those who are being born into the uh, nation of Israel. But children of the promise are those that have faith in the one true God. In essence, all true Israelites are saved because all true Israelites are those that live by faith in the lawgiver rather than those who are born Israelites and live to achieve the law by their behavior. And the two examples Paul gives, he's not concerned about individuals or their destinies. I know it sounds like it, and we as Americans read that, and it's like he talked about you know, Esau, he talked about Jacob, these are individual guys. But he's pointing out to the Jewish believers that God has always chosen what nation he would or would not bless. He's speaking about Isaac in relation to Ishmael. Isaac, the son of Abraham, whose descendants became the nation of Israel. And Ishmael, the illegitimate son, whose descendants became the Moabites. And are generally, today, most of the Arab nations that are still in conflict with the nation of Israel. When he mentions Jacob and Esau, on the surface it appears like God is simply picking one to be loved and one to be hated before they were born. That is not what Paul is saying. First, this passage that Paul is referencing and he's quoting is from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And he's not referencing them as individuals at all, but nations. And how God has chosen the nation of Israel, Jacob's descendants, And has not chosen the nation of Edom, Esau's descendants. Now that's foreign thinking to us. But when we look at these Old Testament passages that he's referencing to, these Jews would have all understood it exactly like this. They weren't quite as individualistic minded as we are. The second thing I wanted to point out is that this word hate in the original language, is not this deep dislike and disdain that our word hate means. It simply means a strong preference for, as in this verse, Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Listen, Jesus is not saying in this verse, everybody should hate their spouse. Everybody should hate their mom and dad. Everybody should hate their kids. Everybody should hate themselves. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, everybody got to hate, you just got to hate everybody. That's not what he's saying. You know that. Listen, the Bible is clear. We should obey our parents when we're small. We should honor our parents when we're older. We should always love our parents. In fact, when, when they're older, older, we should take care of them. We should see that they're taken care of. He's not saying hate your parents. What he's saying is, in preference to me, how much you love me and how much you love them, it should look like you hate them compared to how much you love me, even though you really love them. Does that make sense? 
And he's saying the same thing in this passage with Esau. He's not saying he hated him and despised him from the beginning of time and chose him to go to hell. What he's saying is, I chose this nation, the, the nation of Israel, to be my people. So the bottom line of what Paul's saying in these verses is that God has always chosen the nation of Israel over other nations to be the keeper and protector of the faith. And it was always his decision who was really in the nation of Israel by faith. And so those who were born into the nation of Israel by birth, physical birth, if they rejected the faith of their fathers, they were no longer part of the nation of Israel. But those, even Gentiles, who were not born into the faith, but uh, were grafted into the faith, those were true Israelites, true Jews, because they believed in the one true God. So the word has not failed. God's word has not failed them by letting Gentiles in. It's the same as it has always been. They just didn't understand that. And Paul was trying to help them understand it. So these verses have absolutely nothing to do with individual election, but God's privilege to choose which nation he wants to use in history to do his bidding. He's saying, look, if God wants to use Canada, can he choose to do that? Sure he can. If God chooses to use the United States, can he? Sure he can. If God chooses not to bless the United States, can he? Sure he can. That has nothing to do with our individual uh, response to the gospel. Paul continues. And he kind of muddies the water, but not really. When he says, God shows mercy to whomever he chooses. Now, for most of us Americans who are experts at fairness, we want everything to be fair for everybody, right? And by the way, it's according to our uh, fairness, our definition of what fair is. Well, let me read this passage in verses 14 through 19 and then talk about it for a minute. Paul says this, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God being unfair? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. First, let's talk about God showing mercy to whomever he chooses, and if that's fair or not. Well, let's say uh, I was, uh, I was uh, uh, well, well, let's first talk about fairness. How many of you think God should be fair? Let me see your hands. All right. Smart crowd. I love that. Okay. Folks, the last thing I want from God, or you're just too scared to say anything. <laughs> I don't know. Listen, the last thing I want from God is for him to be fair with me. I am a sinner with a 55-year resume of all the silly, stupid, mean, rotten, depraved things I have done. The last thing I want to do is step to God and say, see my resume? Now you be fair with me. I don't want God to be fair. I want him to be merciful. I want him to be more merciful. The last thing we want is for God to be unfair. Now, think of it this way. If I wasn't a pastor and I had a job where I got rich 
and I came to your street and I decided I'm going to stop at every other house. I'm going to ring the doorbell and say to them, hey, listen, God bless you. Here's $1,000. I just hope you have a great day. Then I skip a house. Then I go to the next doorbell. I ring the doorbell. Hey, here's $1,000. God bless you. Hope you have a great day. And I do that all up and down your street. Now, don't act like you're all righteous here right now. If I skip your house, you know what you're going to think, don't you? You rip me off. You skip me. Why don't I get what they got? Now, I haven't taken anything away from you. I haven't done any harm to you at all. All I've done is chosen to bless somebody else more than you. But in our culture and in our thinking, we, we think, well, that's just unfair. That's totally unfair. But the bottom line, folks, is we can't tell God who to show mercy and grace to. He shows his grace and mercy to whomever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants. Because the reality is, it's not like everybody's going to heaven and God chooses to send some people to hell because he doesn't like them. No, that's wrong thinking. The reality is, all mankind is destined to go to hell and God is showing his mercy and grace to people hoping that they'll respond to it. Hoping that they'll be a part of it. Look at this quote from from Exodus to Moses, it says, in quote, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, unless we are an Old Testament scholar, most of us will not even know what that's referring to. But this Old Testament quote was referring to when the Jews had just turned away from God to worship idols while Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. God responded by telling Moses he was planning on destroying the entire nation of Israel and starting over with Moses alone. If you don't know that story, go read that. It's exactly what it says. But because of Moses' intercession, because of Moses' praying, the Lord changes his mind and gave those who were willing a chance to repent. That doesn't mean Moses was in charge. It doesn't mean he was bossing God. It just means that he shared his heart and God decided to be merciful. He chose to be merciful. There's a tender dialogue between God and Moses that followed this little episode. And the Lord allowed Moses to behold some of his glory, telling him, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. The Lord was saying that to people of faith like Moses, he gives mercy while to people like the Jews who had rebelled and people like Pharaoh, he gives judgment and he hardens them. When they've rejected him, he hardens their heart a little bit. By choosing to have faith or to rebel against God, individuals impact which they will receive God's mercy or God's hardening. They determine whether God will fashion them into a vessel of mercy or a vessel of prepared for destruction. But listen, God is not uh, uh, taking a back seat to all of this. He, remember when we, the, the first principle we talked about, his desire is that everybody receive Christ as their Savior. Everybody goes to heaven. That's what he wants to happen because God shows his power even by his patience. He shows his power even by his patience. Look at verses 19 through 26. Says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? 
Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Paul uses this analogy of the clay and the potter to help the Jews understand and see that asking God why he allows these Gentiles to come into the family of God is just really not their place. Just really not their place. And we might look at them and think, yeah, a bunch of jerks, why do they do that? But as a side note, it's never our place to see what God is doing and question it or sometimes even judge it. And I think we do when we look at the world and we start a statement in our minds or even in our voices that says, God, how dare you, whatever we're about to say, how dare you let my child get cancer? God, how dare you let children starve all throughout the world? God, how dare you allow corrupt governments to imprison and kill their people? God, how dare... Listen, folks, when we've gone, started going down that path, that's a very, very dangerous path to go down because we're putting our thoughts above his thoughts and, in essence, putting ourself above him. And I have friends that are far from God ask me all the time, if God is so wonderful and loving and merciful, why does he let those things happen? He tells us right here. He says, listen, some vessels are created and, and through the process of dealing with human beings, they become vessels that are really created for destruction. But what they do is they show God's power. They show God's greatness. Think of it this way. Two brothers are born. At the time they're born, uh, uh, they're both sinners. They're both vessels for destruction. They're growing up together. One of them gives his life to Jesus. His life is not perfect. Uh, not everything is, you know, rosy all the time. He goes through the same challenges as his brother does. But there's a foundation of peace and joy and mercy and love in his life that his brother doesn't have. And so maybe this brother who's rejecting Christ, God hardens his heart a little bit. It makes it harder for him to, to see and want God. I don't know. Because if this brother never comes to Christ and this brother does, and we look at the two and go, wow, look how much better off this guy's life is. Look how much more peace this guy has. It looks like they're going through the same situations in life, but he, the way he handles it is just so much different. You see, it even proves out God's goodness. We've all been created as vessels of judgment and wrath when we were born, rebelling against God and being sinners. But we all had to be created for some of us to become vessels of mercy later to show off God's glory and his power too. You know, God wouldn't have to be patient, that, that, that phrase in here about being patient. God would have no need to be patient if he created some to be rebellious, to wind up rebellious, and to fulfill what he created them to be, rebellious, and then just destroy them. He wouldn't have to be patient with them, just, just kill them already. But God is being patient even now 
For those who have not yet given their lives to Jesus to turn from their sins and accept what Jesus did on the cross to save them and become vessels of mercy. Even now, he's allowing vessels that are still created for destruction eventually. He's being patient with them, hoping they'll come to know Christ. Paul ends this part with a quote from Hosea. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. You see, it shouldn't be a surprise to the Jewish believers that God was going to graft in Gentiles. It's all over the Old Testament. It's been prophesied like crazy. That was God's plan all the time. And there are prophecies to prove that fact. At this point, the Jewish believers had to be pretty despondent, wondering if there was any hope for any of them or for the nation of Israel. Is there any hope for any of that? Or are we just going to be obliterated? Well, Paul leaves them with a little bit of encouragement. He says there's still a remnant of Judaism in Christianity. Look at verses 27 through 29. It says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Here Paul's encouraging them that, that also prophesied was this truth that even though the Israelites would be great in number, there would always be a few that would be saved. There would always be a few that would remain God's people. So they wouldn't be annihilated like Sodom and Gomorrah. They would continue to be God's followers through Jesus Christ and their faith in him. So does this passage, chapter 9, does it preach a God that's arbitrarily continuing to create people that he has chosen to reject him and spend an eternity in hell? I don't think so. Look, God is sovereign. God is in charge. We get that. He does send his Holy Spirit to draw us to repentance. But it does take our response to work in conjunction with his initiation as his enlightenment and his enlightenment to be saved from our sins. No one should ever think or feel like I can't be saved because God did not choose me. We should never stop praying or talking to somebody about Jesus because we have concluded somehow that they're part of the unelect. Listen, I know a little bit about relationships. The reality is, when Julie and I began dating and we got serious, I chose her before she chose me. No, it's not a surprise to you. Okay? I chose, I, I wanted to be married to her. She said, I'm not ready. I don't know. I don't know about you, Michael. I've got to think through this a little bit. Okay? So I initiated the relationship. I, I, I invited her. I asked her to marry me. I pursued her. I was, I wasn't following her. I wasn't stalking her. But you know what I mean. I was, I was, I was trying to get her to say yes. Eventually, she responded and she said yes. And at that time, a different relation started between the two of us. Listen, God initiates everything. God sends his Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin. God sends us his word and makes it possible for uh, people to come and tell us the gospel. God is doing everything that he uh, wants to do to draw us to himself. But it does take a response from us to just say, yeah, I, I get it, God. I get it. You sent your son to die for me and I accept him as my savior. Romans chapter 9 is about helping the Jewish believers in Rome understand that their salvation was never about their nationality or their outward obedience to the law or their religion. 
Salvation has always been about having faith in the one true God of the law and still is. Even for the Gentiles who did not come from their religious heritage, which means you and I, God is waiting to graft us into his family if we will simply by faith turn and give our lives to Jesus. If you haven't done that yet and you'd like to do that, that card is right in front of you. Check that box on the back. We will follow up with you. We will have a conversation with you or you can just talk to us even before you leave today. And we'll help you do that, folks. God is wanting to do that. And God is wanting to use us to help all the people outside these walls who don't know him to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for your spirit that guide and teach us. Father, we thank you that somebody shared the gospel with us, that your spirit drew us, that your word impacted us, and you caused us, you drew us to yourself. God, we pray that you will now use us to minister to those around us, to love them, to bless them, and to see them come to know you through what you do. We know that we can't change the heart of a human being. Only you can do that. But God, you've chosen to partner with us and use us as your bidders in this world. And so God, help us to hold up our end of that. Help us to work in partnership with you so that you can work in and through us and see your kingdom grow and come on this earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.